I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Don Schumacher. He's been a leader in the hospice and palliative care industry for over 30 years. Today we share his journey and we say goodbye to the president of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Hey, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm sorry it took so long to coordinate, but here we are. First of all, I just want to say thanks for coming on, and we really do appreciate your time. Sure, no problem. Happy to. So tell me, why hospice? I mean, what sparked your interest in making hospice a career for over 30 years? I went to hear Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talk about the dying child in, actually, it was 19, May, May, April or May of 1975. And it was just at the time period when she was getting her... Um, Name well known, more well known. She was uh, her published her book in in '69, so she had a lot of uh, follow up interviews and conversations, and she's working on other books. And she was really becoming uh, an international speaker on these issues. And when I went to hear her, it was a it was an incredibly eye opening um, conversation. And uh, largely because when I was younger, when I was 12, and when I was 19. I had the, the girl next door died and my best friend in high school died. And uh, I had a beloved grandmother that died. And the things that were in my mind problematic with those three deaths, other than the fact that I lost those three people is that there was no conversation about what was going on with the patient or with the family. I grew up in a family where uh, you didn't really talk about your feelings very much or your emotions. Uh, and uh, I think that what was going on was for me, was an awareness that, oh my gosh, these three deaths that were so important to me could have been different and probably should have been different. And what she, Kubler-Ross, was talking about in that interview was dying, uh, while difficult and painful and sad always, does not necessarily have to be tragic or uh, alone, and iso- lonely and isolating experience. And so that's what got me interested in it. I was getting, I was just starting my master's degree at the time. And I decided from hearing her speak and, and like lobbing it to my own experience uh, indicated to me that this is really where I'd like to put my psychological work uh, together. So that is how it all happened. So tell us a little bit about your timeline, because you are not a physician or a clinical person in a kind of a hospice RN sense, but you finished your master's. And where did you go from there? I went to Boston and got my uh, doctorate in uh, psychology from William James College in Boston. At the same time that I was doing that, I was doing some teaching and training around issues that related to death and dying. Before I left Buffalo, I helped to form an organization in Buffalo called the Life and Death Transition Center, which was essentially a a model based on what Kubler Ross had talked about uh, in terms of people's uh, understanding and abilities to come to terms with death in their lives. So I left uh, Buffalo, moved to Boston, was doing my doctorate, and also then started a hospice program in Watertown, Waltham, and Belmont, Massachusetts. Uh, earlier on, it was the hospice of Watertown, Waltham, and Belmont, and then it became Hospice West. Uh, all wonderful experiences, training experiences, administrative experiences, and 
even though I'm not a, a medically clinically trained person, I consider myself a, a psychologically clinically trained person. So I've got a psychological uh, clinical background, which I think is incredibly helpful when you're dealing with these very important issues. And when you're dealing with death and dying, and then, of course, the grief and bereavement for the family, quite critical to be able to have a psychological frame. I, I would tend to agree with you because I believe whether you're a caregiver or family or the patient, there's a lot of psychological things going on throughout this whole dying process that either come up or we've avoided all our lives and suddenly you find yourself facing some of these things that you've never told anyone before. So you were part of Buffalo Hospice, correct? Yes. Well, I was, I was involved with this life, trans, life and Death Transition Center. And I was close with the woman that was running the hospice in Buffalo, Charlotte Shedd, but I wasn't actually doing clinical work there. I was working my master's degree and helped to found this other organization. What I hear now is that center is actually doing a lot of studies on individuals at end of life talking to past loved ones. And Dr. Kerr out there is, uh, is doing some fabulous work, too. So what brought you to Washington, D.C.? Well, the job opened up in 1997. They'd hired someone as the CEO, and I was still doing some work up there in Buffalo. And the job opened up again in 2002, and I decided that I would give it a, a try. And I applied for it, and I did get it and decided that I would make that the next iteration of my experience. We call it NHPCO, but tell me exactly what does NHPCO stand for and what does it mean exactly? The National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization stands for a membership organization, largely still composed of many hospices and fewer uh, palliative care providers, but I suspect that will change over time, you probably know about this better than I do, but there's this little bit of a split in our field between some of the palliative care providers and the hospice providers. Some palliative care people don't want palliative care to only be known to be about dying, but it is an issue for some of those individuals. So NHPCO is the largest membership organization for hospice providers pretty much in the entire world. You know, there's about mm, over 5,000 hospices in the U.S., and we probably have Oh, I'm not sure how many. Some are pretty close to uh, 3,500 or 4,000. Wow. So let me ask you this. Over the past 41 years, does some moments stand out in your mind over the last 41 years? Well, the experience with Kubler-Ross was like that changed my entire life. And going to that first workshop, and then I went to several of her death and dying workshops that she held for several years after that. That experience changed my entire life. I was going to originally be a high school English teacher and then a college English teacher. And then I was really getting interested in psychology. So I thought I would get my master's and then doctorate in psychology. But Kubler-Ross's entrance into my life really turned the entire picture around. Because I think, as was true back then, and probably still is true with some people, she presented a unique blend of uh, professional experience and personal experience. And, and, you know, her message was very strongly, you have to face your own death and what your fears are about your own death before you try and help anybody else with theirs. So I think her work, and then of course, before her, uh, 1965 in London, Dame Cecily Saunders, finding the modern day uh, hospice movement. Um, so you had, that was going on in, in London. Kubler-Ross was going on here in the United States. And they sort of all joined together, I think, with a whole variety of other people to try and say, we want to do something different um, as uh, caregivers in dealing with death, grief, and loss in our communities. That's amazing. So let's talk about the industry of hospice and palliative care. What stands out at some of the biggest victories for this industry? 
the biggest victory is the hospice Medicare benefit, uh, which I was peripherally involved in. I'm still working in my small hospice there, but I was working with some people who were very involved in the conversation with Congress. You have people like Leanne Panetta and a variety of other, uh, John Heinz, uh, Bob Dole, who really felt that uh, this legislation was critical to try and improve care of the dying. And we are to be grateful to a lot of these early pioneers who went to Congress and, and then helped with Congress getting the message out to other congressmen and women to sign legislation in 19, permanent legislation in 1984 uh, after the, the demonstration project was done in 1979, 80, 81, 82, uh, to demonstrate that hospice's way of caring for the dying was not only the right way, but also was most cost effective. So those early years were quite pivotal. And then uh, the intense growth all around the country, you know, this was a lot of hospice care. And although the original, what's a modern up-to-date hospice movement, started in London, our hospice industry, because I was on the board of the, the British Hospice Organization for some time, our hospice world here is much more advanced. We've got good reimbursement. They actually, up until recently, didn't have any standards for end-of-life care or hospice care in Britain and all around the globe. I've been on the boards of the Worldwide Hospice and Care Alliance around the globe. When you look at what's going on elsewhere, we are way miles ahead. We're very lucky in this country to have the reimbursement that we do to provide the services. Do you feel that the hospice benefit needs to be updated? It's been almost 30 years. And, and if so, what kind of updates? And if not, then why stay the same? I think that we were the original managed care benefit. And when Medicare was talking about wanting to adapt and change it, I was lukewarm about it because I thought it was working pretty well. What my concern was, or been remains, is that there wasn't enough oversight by the federal government of hospice programs. And we did some work the last several years to get some very good legislation put through so that now hospices are being surveyed at a minimum of every three years, which will be, I think, not certainly the answer to all of the problems, but I think it is is a, a potential for us to have people being looked at more often will, will be very helpful. So I think... Um, uh, the benefit itself does need to be updated. I think that our patient population has changed. I think we have to have opportunities to include or incorporate somehow palliative care into the hospice Medicare benefit more carefully and thoughtfully. And I think there's great opportunity for us to build on what's, what's been done by recognizing that so much has changed that it does need to be updated a bit. It does make me a little nervous, though, when you start changing Congress and getting people to kind of really talk and implement change when they really don't fully understand exactly what they're talking about. And so I do feel the nervousness, but I feel like you that the population is changing. And, and this is where a lot of hospices are struggling with facing these changes because we're dying longer. And sometimes when people are dying longer with quality, they're not fitting into that hospice benefit. So do you feel like the hospice benefit is narrowing who's getting this by eligibility and criteria? I think it's gotten a little bit narrower, I have. And not because the benefit itself changed, but the oversight and, let's say, the skepticism on the part of CMS about what some of the providers are actually providing. I mean, there's, there's a belief with some folks at CMS that we've been admitting inappropriate patients for a very long time period. And I don't quite feel that way myself. I don't think there's any kind of a uh, a time constraint on when a person absolutely has to die once they go into hospice. But I do think that there have been probably some providers who have complicated the issue because I think there have been some folks who have uh, admitted people into their program too soon before they were eligible for hospice care. So it's a combination of things, I think. The population is changing. 
huge influx of new providers in the last five to 10 years. And I think the uh, need to try to look at the benefit because of the patient population is definitely something right at the top of the list. Well, with palliative, so many individuals do not know what palliative is, nor how to even access palliative care. Can you help us understand a little bit more about what palliative is versus hospice? Palliative is really essentially uh, hospice with a longer tail. <laughs> I always tell people it is a good comprehensive pain and symptom management, psychological support, family support, the uh, physician and the medical team working with the patient and family to make sure that their, their health care is they're going through a process of some kind of serious treatment is being effectively managed and they have enough support in order to take care of the patient and the family. It is essentially only paid for right now by the physician and the nurse visit, although some of the commercial insurances are paying for a little bit more of a rich palliative care benefit. But I don't expect that is going to increase greatly because when you talk to people at CMS, they actually are, are pretty direct in saying that hospice is their their largest commitment to a palliative care benefit. I have always thought that maybe what hospice needs, the hospice Medicare benefit needs, is a fifth level of care. There are four right now. Maybe we need a fifth level of care, which would be palliative care, and see if there's a way to uh, adjust or, or identify how those patients would be receiving palliative care services before they got into hospice. But that's that's a long ways away. The government, as you know, <laughs> is uh, broke. Uh, there's no new benefits coming down the pipe for some time. And I think palliative care is the natural complement to a good comprehensive hospice program. So you would recommend hospices to actually have a strong palliative care program? Oh, absolutely. Every hospice program should have a palliative care program because if they don't, uh, somebody else will have it in your community. Absolutely. What advice would you provide local hospice organizations moving forward in such a interesting time, let's say? I mean, should they be focusing on their attention to position themselves in the future? And how do we do that with ACOs coming up, which is a affordable care organizations? And how do we play and position ourselves to make sure that hospice is still growing in their momentum? I've seen a lot of hospice, great hospice organizations start being a little bit more conservative and it, it, I get, it makes me nervous. Well, the conservatism is coming from the increased oversight coming out of Medicare. And, you know, I will say to you, I probably would have answered this question differently 10 days ago than I'm answering it today. I don't know after this election what is going to come our way in terms of redoing or trashing Affordable Care Act and ACOs and all of those things. Everything may be changing in the next couple of months. What I think is really important for hospices is to develop a very strong strategic plan that is only at maximum one year and to be as flexible and developing as you possibly can. You need to have at least one strong, good, uh, full-time physician who understands the nuances of hospice and palliative care and who can help develop a palliative care program for you in your community. And you need to have uh, a whole series, I think, of relationships in the community that will make sure those patients get referred uh, in a timely fashion to the hospice program. So even though it's a little crazy right now, I think that hospices have an opportunity to go out there with a strong uh, complement to their community and get good referrals and support and making sure that they're admitting the patients, especially now that the benefit has changed in terms of the first 60, the, the last 60, and then the last seven days. I mean, I, I do think that people need to be really thoughtful about the direction. So right there in Washington, um, something called death with dignity passed. Um, what is your opinion on medical aid and dying when it comes to hospice care at the end of life? What is your opinion on that? 
Well, my opinion these days is there is a, a really important individual patient choice that needs to be afforded to people. And I do think we're going to find every state in the country eventually will have opportunities for people to do PAD. But it's not something that I think it can be forced. I think it's going to evolve naturally as time goes on. The baby boomers always have wanted to have control on their health care. And uh, they may now see this as a way for them to have ultimate control over their lives. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a little uh, back and forth on it, I guess. But I think it's going to naturally change and develop over a period of time. I think there are five states now. And I know a lot of them have it on their, their agendas for their legislative sessions coming up. So it's going to be a very interesting time. Do you think hospices or organizations are going to have to get on board where it's, where it's already passed those states? I don't know about getting on board in terms of actually providing it. But I think what they need to do is, is help the patients and families make their choices and decisions about what it is that they want. You know what? I never hooked medical aid and dying with the baby boomers. And I think you make a very valid point about maybe this is some of... That I mean, because we think the baby boomers were going to change how we face end of life, and maybe they see this as a way that um, we're able to, or they are able to do that. I think that's probably very true. So, tell me a little bit about your future. How do you see fourteen years right at NHPCO? Yep. Uh huh. And so, what's around the corner for you? I don't think you're going to ever leave the death and dying industry, if we call it that. So what do you see you doing in the future? Well, I also am, am working on a book. <laughs> Some of it's connected to what, what we were just talking about. Some of it's very different. Um, and I'm going to be doing a lot of consulting. Uh, NHPCO has a uh, NHPCO Edge now, which is our consulting division. And so what I'm going to attempt to do when the new CEO is identified as the former contract, where I can go out and do uh, education and training with hospice programs, largely with the CEOs and the, their boards and improving the strategies and being effective in their communities. So that's really what I've loved doing, the speaking and the training that I've done the last 14 years with the nation's hospices around these very important strategy issues in communities. So I want to continue to do that as a part of the NHPCO consulting business. And then I'm going to play with my grandchildren. Is <laughs> what I'm planning on doing, yeah. I'd love to invite you back on to talk to you about when you finish that book and let's promote that. Is it basically around just hospice and sort of the dying experience? Yes. And, and it's a bit of a memoir in terms of my own experience in this experience in the field and what there, there's like 15, 50 million things I haven't shared with you, but I'd like to incorporate into this uh, what gets people on this path to the hospice door, either as a patient or as a professional. And why is this, I, I believe it's critical for the future of our industry that we have more and more people interested in trying to be helpful. Oh, wow. I look forward to reading it. You're, you're such a great speaker. I've met you several times throughout the last 18. So I remember been, you. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And I call it retirement, but I'm leaving the actual hospice organization and trying to look at how can we add design thinking and creatively look at the dying process to make it an experience instead of just a destination. Mm-hmm. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on. And I look forward to Let's talk about the book down the road. Sure. And if you need more feedback after you have a chance to listen to this, just give me a call back. I totally will do that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.